All right, uh, welcome back to Firewall. My guest today is Alex Kantrowitz. I think a lot of you will be familiar with Alex's work. He writes a newsletter called Big Technology, hosts a great podcast called Big Technology, wrote a book that really got a lot of praise called Always Day One. So in terms of experts on tech, especially big tech, Alex is the guy. Alex, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Bradley. Yeah, so just just to set the scene here, because I was asked, you're in southern Germany, and you said it was cold, and then I told you how cold it was supposed to get here in New York, and then even further north in New England, and, and you kind of backed off on your we're colder than you statement. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. I mean, given the fact that there's going to be negative 50 wind chills in the Northeast this weekend, uh, I thought I was cold here in Bavaria, but turns out I'm living the life. And do you always winter in Bavaria? <laughs> no, this is the first time for me. Uh, I, I met a lovely person uh, about a year ago, uh-huh. and uh, I've come to um, spend the winter with her and her family, and we'll see where it goes from here. Got it. How do you, how do you like Germany compared to wh- – where did you grow up in the U.S.? I grew up in Long Island, so I'm a New York guy through and through. This is yeah. definitely different. But Bavaria is, is considered the Long Island of Germany, from what I understand. Uh, yeah, it has some Long Island. It has some Texas. There are some yeah. things that I find that are somewhat similar. But you know, I live in Brooklyn now, so when I'm uh, on my walk now, instead of running past like a million people, like you determine the length of your walk by whether you want to go uh, a cow walk, a cow and goat walk, or a cow, goat, and sheep walk. Do you, so, usually, do you usually make it to the sheep? Is that like your goal? The sheep, the sheep, yeah, well, I have to be honest, my, my sheep length walks have dropped off a little bit because they put them inside for the winter, it's too cold for them. Got it. It's uh, too but cold we were, for the sheep, we, it's so too cold the, for you. One of the beautiful things about this part of Europe is that everything is so close, you're about a 10 minute drive to Austria, a little bit longer, and you're in Switzerland, we were in Switzerland last weekend visiting a friend and some of the animals out there in the Alps are just amazing. Like these mountain goats, they have little ponies and um, these big horned sheep there. It's just, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, I think that this is, this is a nice winter thing to do and to do it once. And um, I'm enjoying it very much, but I'm also looking forward to being back in New York. And to the listeners, when you're in Brooklyn, if you see a guy walking a big horned sheep around, that's Alex. That would be me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, actually, I've uh, somehow over the course of the time here have agreed to get two pigs, not one, two pigs. You need two pigs because one pig gets lonely. Yeah, of course. Of course. So I'll that, be the yeah. pig guy in Prospect Park. There you that's go. for sure. There was actually, so we live in Gramercy, and there was a lady that walked around with a Vietnamese pot bellied pig for a while. Did you ever see that, Hugo? Yeah. Especially around the Stuyvesant Park where kids go to school. So, um, yeah. So you, it, it, the big horn sheep, I think, would be a little more groundbreaking, but, but the pigs are good too. Um, Pigs. Yeah, so that's I apparently guess I, the deal. I should congratulate so. you because you've been plagiarized by Chatbot GPT. You, so far, everything I've read is the concern about students plagiarizing Chatbot GPT. Chatbot GPT is plagiarizing you, so you must be really good. What happened? It was really weird. So I wrote this story, actually, kind of hilariously, about how the creator economy was overblown and how it's much harder to make it in the creator economy than a lot of people imagine, and. That story was picked up a little bit, and I saw some of the commentary on it, and there was this new substack called The Rationalist that I had never heard of before that wrote something similar, and I went and read it. I went and read it, and I was curious what was going on there. And as I'm reading it, I'm starting to recognize these are my senses. (laughs) These are my main points. And now look, I'm used to, as a journalist working for a small substack publication, I'm used to the big publications like the BBC or Bloomberg 
you know, and it's happened before taking my scoops and, you know, going to the company and confirming and reporting them as if they've, they've done it themselves. So totally erasing my uh, big technology Substack from history. And then usually I'll like write an editor and be like, Hey, come on, like, give me credit. And half the time that happens uh, because that stuff is important. If you don't source, then you're basically taking readership from the publication who's reporting. You, you learn that information. From. So, so you're reading this newsletter, you realize it's your work. Who do you complain to? What do you do about exactly. it? Exactly. So <laughs> then it gets really weird. So the first thing I do is go to the comments and write immediately. This is, you know, there's no link back. There's no mention of big technology. And again, it's my sentences. Yeah. So I'm like, this is a clear cut case of plagiarism. I write a comment. Hey, like you're a new sub stack. There's, this is no way to get ahead by plagiarizing. Give me credit. Yeah. And my comment is deleted. And I said, okay. And I'm like, well, what comments has this person left? And so what happens is they actually talked about how they used four different AI tools to improve, quote unquote, improve readability. So it wasn't like a clear cut case of them taking my writing and, uh, sorry, of them asking these tools to write and then the tools spitting out my writing. What they did was, and, and, you know, this is a little bit of a leap for me, but you know, you can, you can sort of triangulate here. The writer took my writing, threw it into these, uh, AI tools and then had them remix the work to make it look like it was new. And as you read, you can really hear some of the ticks that the AI uh, writers uh, tend to include. And, and so that's what happened. It was able, the person was able to remix the work quickly and then post it within a matter of hours on their Substack claiming credit. And then their story goes to the top of Hacker News, which is a forum which a lot of engineers hang out on. And if you get on Hacker News, you're basically good for thousands of views, especially if you hit the front page. And this person did using this plagiarized version of my work. And I'm like, come on. So it was like, at first, A, this person is a plagiarist. B, this person has gone viral using my work. C, hey, wait a second, how did they do it? You know, learning that the fact that, that it was done through these tools. And then D, being like, okay, well, that's kind of cool and kind of interesting, you know, that it's happened once because this is, you know, obviously something new that I've stumbled upon. Yeah. And I'm now, you know, part of it. And I was just like, okay, it happened once. It's interesting. I'm going to write about it. If it happens again, that's really going to suck because, you know, as this stuff gets repeatable, it can be a threat to people producing original content online. Yeah, for sure. So you write about it, and then what's the reaction? Well, <laughs> you know, it, I think everybody has this fear that generative AI is trained on certain material, and eventually it will spit back some of the training material and present it as original. Um, and and you, this goes anywhere from ChatGPT to Dolly. And I think the story struck a nerve because people read some of their deepest fears into it, even though it was slightly different uh, than, the, than the most feared case. This was a person using it to plagiarize, but it got a tremendous amount of attention. Uh, and initially, Substack was like, sorry, this isn't plagiarism. Can you point out where it's plagiarism? And I was like, come on, like, this is so obvious. And I highlighted in my stories the exact clauses right. uh, that, that were, were copied. And then uh, I think maybe five days after my story came out, something thereabouts, Substack came to, <laughs> came to a very uh, clear realization that this actually was plagiarism and took down the story. But the publication remains. And in fact... I don't think it was so Substack has this recommendation feature. Mm -hmm. And when I was looking for publications to recommend, I think it had actually seen that I had referenced this other. Oh, so the Alex Cantor's recommends it, it said, these hey, plagiarists. Why don't you recommend yeah. this publication? Yeah. And I'm like, 
Fuck Hell no. no. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Guys. So there's work to do is what I'm saying. So it, chatbot GPT is sort of the first thing to really capture the public imagination on AI. So the ethical questions about it are kind of what we just discussed, which is people stealing other people's work, students handing in term papers that they didn't really write, all of that. Is that really, in your view, what the main ethical questions will be around AI, or, or do you think they're different and deeper? Oh, that's part of it for sure. But the other way that people are going to um, debate the true function of this technology is how does it view the world and how does it present the world? And we're already starting to see that. Like if you ask ChatGPT, I just saw this example this week, to like write something praiseworthy about Joe Biden, it will do it. But if you ask it to write something praiseworthy about Donald Trump, it won't. Citing some of the missteps that Trump has made in, uh, in public office. And what happened is, so, so Sam Altman, who's the CEO of, Chat, of, of OpenAI, which produces ChatGPT, actually went on Twitter this week and made a plea for people to not harass OpenAI employees over the bias that this thing has. And I'll just read you what he said. He says, we know that ChatGPT has shortcomings around bias and are working to improve it improve it. But directing hate at individual open AI employees because of this is appalling. Hit me all you want, but attacking other people here doesn't help the field advance and the people do doing it know that. And he also says we are working to improve the default systems too. And this is important to be more neutral and also to empower users to get our systems to behave in accordance with their individual preference within broad bounds. This is harder than it sounds and will take us some time to get right. So this is where I think the, the real battle is. Now, of course, we're going to see things in the schools and with journalists, and there's going to be big debates there. But how does, how does ChatGPT and how do these AI systems view and, and present the world? How do they interact with political leaders? You know, what happens when they start to connect to the Internet and then decide, you know, take in information and decide to present it? I think the battle over the way this goes is going to make the content moderation debate look like a picnic because the content moderation debate is usually does it should this user be there should this post stay open and we've seen you know congress and the senate uh, and even the president get involved in that type of stuff yep. now it's going to be how did these bots which i think OpenAI's chat gpt has like 100 million users it's one of the fastest growing consumer products ever every decision that it makes scales in terms of this stuff and it's going to have influence talking to people so Believe me, I think that this is going to be a, a battle that's really going to dwarf what we've seen in content moderation, and it's just getting started. That's terrifying. But let's just, in terms <laughs> of the Trump thing, so how does it actually happen, right? So you have someone coding. Obviously, every human being has bias and opinions. Um, do, is it just that the the system itself can, through very subtle ways, detect the biases and opinions of the person doing the coding and reflect that in the output? Or is this person actually writing, you know, don't praise Donald Trump into the code? Well, it's a very good question. So what happens is that these, these chatbots are trained on very large bodies of text. So they tend to pick up, in their raw form, they tend to pick up all the information and in the biases that human ha humans have, and that's sort of how they form their worldview initially. So there is no starting point where this AI can be unbiased or neutral, as Sam Altman says, and I don't think there's ever a place where these, something that's conversational can never, can, conversational can never really be truly neutral. Even if you're presenting some 
two points of view. You're going to frame them differently or you'll present one first and the other second. So this idea of neutrality is, is I think, a, a, an illusion or delusion, depending on your perspective. Right. And now, once they build this raw bot, then they have trainers in. And these are people that will you know, work to train the AI, spot errors, and then ultimately hard and ultimately the organization will hard code some barriers into it that will make sure that it doesn't go over certain tripwires. So like the one of the most obvious things that you would imagine is they would go in and you would say, okay, write a paragraph praising Hitler, and they have a, a barrier that they code, they hard code into the bot that say that says anything like this or this type of request, we don't do it. And indeed, when you ask OpenAI's ChatGPT to say, you know, name some good things that Hitler did, uh, it won't. It will t- give you kind of a lecture. And then you can argue. Yeah, with I've it. got not for that, but I've got yeah. a lecture by Chappie. I'm like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Like, don't tell me. Exactly. It's, well, it, it moralizes. Yeah. And by the way, that's another ethical question is should these things moralize or not? But I found it actually like some of these decisions that it makes are pretty good. So I, I push back on it. And obviously, look, I'm Jewish, so. Not a Hitler fan, but I do like to test these um, yeah. these bots and see like where you can get them to break. So I said, well, he built the highways in Germany. And then ChatGPT said, that's true. But what you're not including in your answer is that these highways were built with a lot of forced labor. And that's not something that I would praise. So this is definitely, I, I call this thing the first good chatbot because it is a step beyond some of the older chatbots, which would either not, you know, say, I'm not going to, going to, um, uh, can converse with you on that topic or in case of Microsoft's Tay, which is a chatbot from a few years ago, sort of overnight that thing became a Hitler supporter because Reddit effectively said, let's break this thing. And they were able to, and no one's been able to break ChatGPT in right. that way. Yeah. So and it's very we, interesting. Totally. And when, when people sometimes you hear them say, well, ChatGPT is just sort of like a much better Google. I think the example you just gave is probably the key distinction, which is you could, through searching on Google, find that Hitler used forced labor to build the highways, but it wouldn't automatically just come up in the discussion or response, whereas chatbot sort of advances it to the next level. Is that a fair representation? Yeah, definitely. And it's also interesting because one of the things that is great about Google, even though it's a little bit frustrating, is it forces you to do your own research, right? So you type yeah. in a topic and you can write like construction of the highways in Germany, and you'll get those 10 blue links and you can click in and click out and read the primary sources and come to your own conclusion. Whereas now, like when you're talking with ChatGPT, it will take a stance and it doesn't hedge very often. I don't know if you've seen this, but it does not hedge. It presents oftentimes what it knows is absolute truth. It never really says, I think. It just presents facts. And so it does that research for you for better or worse, and sometimes for worse. Right. Um, so your column yesterday was, I wouldn't say surprising, because obviously the market was really good for the big tech companies yesterday, but definitely a departure from, I think, what the narrative has been lately. And your argument is, actually, despite all the layoffs, big tech is doing really well. Um, tell me why you think that, given that I think even a week ago, people would have said the exact opposite. Well, I think that, like, as opposed to doing really well, I'd say the rebound has started. Fair and enough. I exaggerated now, your praise. Yeah. So, yeah, but but I think it is kind of like, you know, a lot of people, I think, would probably imagine that there's still further room to drop. And I think they've hit the bottom and are starting to make their way back. And the primary reason for that, now earnings this week have been kind of rough for everyone, even Facebook, who bounced uh, 23% in one day, uh, didn't exactly turn in, like, 
these flowering earnings that made you think that the company's turned itself around. Um, but I do think that for there's there's a few things that are pointing uh, in their direction um, that should give them a boost. The first thing is that they have gone through the pain that this economic downturn is going to probably bring through the entire economy first. The first thing that happened with this, this is all brought about by inflation. And the first thing that happens is the Fed raises the rates and the rate raises hurt the growth companies at first. And those growth companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft at the top. And then you have Kathy Wood's, you know, whole portfolio of innovative tech companies that are sort of outside that world. They got slammed. And that forced them because they were hit first to start to make the moves that would allow them to endure in this tougher economy. That includes some painful layoffs for sure, but also looking internally at cost-cutting measures that don't involve staff reductions, looking at spending. Everyone's doing that, including Apple, which hasn't laid off. Um, And it's also kind of forced them as businesses to, um, to to, to speak to Wall Street differently. And to, to talk about, like, while the rest of the economy might still be operating business as usual, to some extent, they're talking about, you know, a year of efficiency, like Zuckerberg did, or Amazon is telegraphing slowness in the first quarter, and maybe the second quarter next year, and just trying to set realistic expectations, so they don't get blindsided in the future. Whereas and it, is it that simple hit. that all you have to do is basically say, Oh, we're going to start to economize. We're going to start to focus on unit economics, profitability. We're going to, you know, reduce the workforce. And Wall Street says, "Great." Or mm-hmm. do you think some of this is driven by perceptions of which of these companies are, are currently now working on truly innovative things, like Microsoft's investment in OpenAI, that should that's driving the share price? So there is product energy, but I would say that was third. So I'd say the first thing is set the the low expectations. The second is um, that they have. Well, they've fallen so far, um, and it is—it's a bounce, right? So, you look at a company like like Meta, which was like down sixty-five percent over the year before this week. Like, yes, it bounces up twenty-three percent, but it's still down year to date. So, they're all well off their all-time highs, and it's not like you know they're all all of a sudden back. It's just that they're working off like a pretty low base, and then the the most well. This is a thing that I think is going to get lost because people are focused on the numbers. But as this all happened, Jerome Powell started to talk about deep. We're finally seeing some deflation in the or deflationary forces or whatever jargon he used in the economy. And I don't think it's any surprise that that happened one day on on Wednesday and then Facebook turned turned in earnings and it crushed. It was buoyed by that. And what it means is that, you know, through the past few quarters, Investors haven't had any way of really valuing these tech companies, right? Because they had no idea really when the rate raises would stop. They didn't know how bad inflation was going to get. The higher the rates go, the worse these companies' um, uh, runaway costs look. And without a real understanding of when it was going to stop, investors don't want to be in those companies. They want to stay away, go, go to safety, and then... You know, eventually when the coast seems like it's clearing to they would quote unquote risk on. And I think that like now that we're hearing now that we know the cost cuts have happened, now that we're hearing the Fed talk about deflation, now that we're seeing 25 basis basis point rate increases as opposed to 75 basis point rate increases, there's a little bit of safety for investors to go back into these companies. And that's why even when you hear like Amazon, you know, having a, a quarter that's not great and talking about slower growth. It doesn't even give up the day's gains. 
because the Fed is starting to bring the certainty to the market that had been lacking and caused people to stay away. So, so beyond them, the signs of some deflation, the actions of the Feds in raising rates and whatever else, if you take kind of the big five, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, and you were an investor, um, individual stock investor, and you said, okay, I want to pick the long-term winners. I don't really care what inflation or the economy or GDP is doing over the next six months or even 18 months or whatever it is. Who are you recommending? Well, I think that Apple looks pretty cheap today <laughs> compared to where it was before. It was a $3 trillion stock like a minute ago. Now it's in the low twos. So that seems interesting, and they're going to continue. So Dan, Dan Ives has been talking about this. He's an analyst from Wedbush. He's like unapologetically pro-Apple. Uh, but his theory is that they had uh, some shutdown issues in China. Uh, that that limited their demand and then and which caused them to miss earnings expectations for the first time in seven years. So if you're trying to do this buy low, sell high, like it might be a good time to pick them up if you anticipate that they're gonna now on the other side crush in Q1. I think that's possible. I have some concerns about Google. Uh, I mean, Larry and Sergey are back in the building apparently, according to some reports. And Sergey's doing code review right now. And they're all concerned about this threat from Microsoft and ChatGPT, just to bring it full circle. And they're a little bit nervous about releasing their version, which is Lambda. And Google will have to like figure out what it can do um, and what it feels comfortable doing. But Microsoft, OpenAI, right, which are now moving closer and closer towards a combined entity, already have a, a, um, an API out there. That, you, that other people can build off of while Google's kind of sitting on its hands. So I'm nervous. So let's, let's say this. I think Apple might be a bargain. I'm a little nervous about Google. I think Microsoft looks better and better as this stuff continues to show what it can do. Um, Amazon's in a, in, a, in a tough moment now, and I have a story that I, I'm working on now about it. Um, the company decided to put Andy Jassy at the head, as opposed, who was from the, uh, the web services side of the business. Mm -hmm as opposed to Jeff Wilkie or um, even Dave Clark, who were two people on the retail side that were running running that part of the company, um, at a time where they probably could have used the retail expertise because they're suffering from cost overruns and you know runaway spending after investing so much in the infrastructure to enable the pandemic Amazon to, to survive and thrive. And now they have to pull that back and really right the ship in retail. And they don't have those leaders anymore. Both Wilkie and Clark left the company. So now you have Jassy, who's the cloud guy, trying to preside over a retail crisis. And uh, and that's rough. Does, does so, he survive? Sorry? Does, does Jassy survive or, or do they replace him? I think he does. I think that Amazon, I mean, Amazon is used to... Um, Amazon is used to consistent leadership. And I, I think that Jassy also has the blessing of Bezos, which is um, not to be underestimated yeah, not, not but the thing is yeah. that like it, for amazon it's one of those companies that i think it's going to look really rough for the next couple years years not not quarters years and then the question is you know do they have the right guy at the top well that that question will ultimately be answered by whether they continue to whether they can continue to be innovative and inventive in the way that they were under bezos and from what i understand if you're going to try to pick one person to lead the company in that mold, it would be Jassy and not the people who are just going to make the retail operation more efficient. So long-term good for Amazon, short-term rough. And then the only one we're missing right now is Meta. 
which is kind of this very strange yeah. company. Um, its name is kind of embarrassing as the days go on because this metaverse thing uh, doesn't seem like it's going to work out exactly the way that Zuckerberg wanted. Now, of course, virtual reality, augmented reality, that will continue to grow more popular. But the idea that we're all going to want to be hanging out with each other without legs, um, you know, doing activities where we could be hanging out with each other in the real world, it just seems off to me. So they, the big question for them is fending off TikTok. They, they seem to be making progress with Reels and then fending off Apple's anti-tracking changes. Yep. They seem to be making progress in their AI division. And that's another story I'm trying to run down is how that AI division has helped them measure their ads and conversion and performance in a way that Apple has cut off. so And it gets them around the Apple kind of ban, or it just allows them to reconfigure things differently? Yeah, better. so it allows them to reconfigure. And that's what the, there was a report in the Wall Street Journal that said their, their AI has helped them go from like an 8% efficiency hit to a 2.5% efficiency hit, whatever that means. So uh, I, I think it'll be interesting to watch them, but I wouldn't, you know, I think... Meta was maybe attractive to bet on when it was low, but the higher that stock gets, the you know the more concern you you might want to get. Although if you think about it right now, the company's market cap is 494 billion, where like a year ago it was almost double that. So, so you you mentioned TikTok, and obviously there's been a big week in Washington about TikTok, and um, it, it seems to me that kind of the story of the week was, oh, TikTok is finally getting in the game. They're hiring lobbyists. They're testifying on the Hill. They're having meetings. And I don't know what you think, but to me, like, that's the basic 101 blocking and tackling that should have been happening two years ago. And right. at all they're doing right now is sort of like the most rudimentary stuff. Um, their real strength, or at least based on my experience in sort of legalizing tech companies, products like Uber or FanDuel or Bird or Ease or whatever it is, is when you have a customer base that is passionate about your product, and, and I think that's the case with TikTok, I see it with my kids at least, um, that's your greatest weapon, right? And you can mobilize them and it doesn't even cost a lot of money because it's all happening digitally. Um, why is TikTok not doing that? Well, I think that did happen with the Trump ban. If I recall correctly, okay, when yeah, the Trump ban... That was still two years ago. Why aren't they doing it right, right now where they are under significant threat? That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe they can't find people to work for them in the way that... Like, Bradley, would you... If TikTok called you tomorrow and said, hey, we need some help on yeah. this campaign, is that a type of company you'd want to help? I might. It depends on where it's going, right? If, if they said to me, look, um, we know we're going to get sold to... Oracle, Walmart, Microsoft, whatever it is, and we just want to facilitate that, or all of the changes that have been proposed we're going to accept and sort of move everything onto U.S. servers and everything else, then yeah, because I have to tell you as a parent, I find Instagram to be unbelievably scary and harmful, whereas TikTok, and maybe I'm just naive about it, but seems more harmless. So if you said to me, and I understand TikTok's a Chinese company, but one of these companies has to go out of business you know, Instagram as a division of Meta or TikTok, I would say Instagram 10 times out of 10. So yeah, if I thought TikTok had the right intentions, um, I would. If it's purely help us maintain the status quo as is, then no, I probably wouldn't. My perspective on this is, and I think TikTok knows this, is that it will not get banned in the US without a foul. I think we're going to need to see a foul. We're going to need to see it like really concrete bombs away evidence that just for like 
example, the Chinese Communist Party is a, is manipulating American sentiment through its relationship with ByteDance to make us yeah. all, you know, sway towards one party or one candidate. If there's the smoking gun evidence for something like that to happen, then I think that uh, I think that we could see a ban. But we've had multiple administrations now try to grapple with what to do with TikTok. We have people from the FCC running around calling it digital fentanyl. And even still, it doesn't seem like it's at risk. And maybe maybe my perspective is off on this, but it doesn't seem like it's more at risk now than it did before. So, And watching political headwinds, which is a thing I'm supposed to be good at, right. um, it, it is definitely picking up. And look, so the whole premise of this podcast and really everything I do publicly is just to make the case that every policy output is the result of a political input. And if you want to know where things are going, you just have to understand the political incentives of the people involved. And if you want to change the way they're going, you have to change the political incentives for the people involved. And right now, when I look at it, whether you're Rubio or Gallagher or Hawley or all of the people leading this charge, and at this point now, it's it's bipartisan. Uh, Michael Bennett, I think, stepped up into it yesterday. Um, the inputs are all basically, if you bash TikTok, you get praised. You look like you're smart on China. You look like you're smart on big tech. You look like you're being proactive. And so because the only world that's judging you at the moment is sort of the inside game of reporters and think tanks and advocates and people like that, your incentive is to be anti-TikTok. That only changes if the politics change for you. And all of a sudden you're worried, hey, if I go too hard on TikTok, that can cost me votes in the next election. But that's never going to change based on sort of the inside game of, of you know, beltway lobbying, right? It's only going to change if you mobilize real people and let politicians think, oh, um, yeah, I'm getting praise, you know, when I give the speech at the National Press Club from the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or whoever it is. But it's not worth, you know, 50,000 votes in my next primary. Um, Do you this all seems axiomatic to me. But again, I do this for a living. Do you think tech companies understand this mentality? Well, I think they do because they just went through it with the tech lash. And I kind of that's my reference point when I'm thinking about TikTok. Now, I know it's a completely different situation because there's China involved here. But if you think about what we went through, where the type of coalitions that you're talking about emerged to fight big tech and concrete legislation showed up in Congress and the Senate to rein in some of their worst excesses in ways that almost anyone looking on would say would be common sense ways Mm -hmm. to regulate them. Things like creating a law against them, privileging their own services um, with, with data that they get from competitors that have to go through them. And that that never really went anywhere. I mean, you had Elizabeth Warren, who was the, you know, sort of figurehead of the anti-big tech thing and sort of made a point to take on Zuckerberg. And she went nowhere in the Democratic primaries. Now, it wasn't completely that reason. But um, you had even uh, Joe Biden in the primary talking about breaking up Facebook. And that didn't happen. You know, but your Warren point actually is kind of the reason, right, which is. When the game was right. solely inside and it was pundits and advocates and all of that, that crowd loves her. And they said, oh, she's going to be the next <laughs> president. And then when it came to actual voters, she did terribly. I think she came like fourth or fifth in Massachusetts, like because yeah. real voters don't give a shit what people inside the Beltway think. And I think politicians, maybe the Warrens of the world don't because they're so of that mentality. But overall, I think politicians understand that. 
and you can move them on policy um, if you can put this back in their backyard. Um, I still think, despite there being plenty of examples now of tech companies mobilizing their supporters to win, and I know because I've run a lot of them myself, mm-hmm. um, there's still some naivete that, that I have noticed uh, in some of these companies. Um, last, second to last topic. Um, wait, wait. Yeah, before ahead. we move on, right, yeah, I sure. just want to add one last yeah, thing please. to this, and that this is the way that everything could change, and that's if China attacks Taiwan. And yes. that's, that's like not maybe the TikTok foul, but that is the foul that can really change everything. For, for sure. And it doesn't seem like it's so far out of the, you know, you don't You don't think of, the Ukraine struggles that Russia's having are, is giving China second thoughts about invading Taiwan? I, I, well, most definitely it is. But it's a, it's a different, I think it's just a different um, ballgame. And, uh, but yeah, globally, I mean, you know, we talk a little bit about like the, um, the splinter net and how we're like deglobalizing or re-globalizing yes. or whatever the buzzword is these days. But something like that, like if let's say TikTok was Russian and they attacked you like that, right. you know, be, that might be the be end done. of TikTok right. in the U.S. And yeah. so I do think that like that an attack on Taiwan, whether it's now, whether it's five years from now, whether I mean, I'm hoping it doesn't happen, but that right. would definitely I, be the, I think that could shift everything when it comes to TikTok. The conspiracy theory side of me, which is a very small side, thank God, um, <laughs> does say that if you've looked at the massive increase in microchip processing plants being built in the U.S., there's almost an implicit agreement with China, despite some of the saber rattling, saying, look, this is what we need Taiwan for. Once we don't need them anymore for this, because we can do it domestically, we really don't give a shit what you do with it. But you got to give us time to do that. Do you, is there anything to that, or do you think I'm just making up oh. stuff in my head? Well, I mean, it, it could, you know, th- that could well be the truth, even if it's not like a, a handshake or a nod agreement with China. I mean, obviously, the U.S. moving all of this uh, capability back to the country is is definitely, uh, it, it's nothing if not a hedge as to what's going to happen there. And I don't think you invest all these billions of dollars in moving this manufacturing capability back to the U.S. if you don't think something's going to happen. Right, yeah. Um, you're a sort of heavy, heavy Twitter user. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, when you... I need uh, to go through like a 12-step program for it. Yeah, yeah. I think that might be a pretty good business, actually. Um, <laughs> I was on your podcast a couple of months ago. It was the heat of the Elon Twitter mania, and it felt like the wheels were falling off. It feels a little different right now, but is that because he's actually managed to make things better or just because other stories like TikTok and ChatGPT and other things just just took over? Well, I mean, a lot of the craziness initially was just related to the layoffs and those are done. And now it's sort of like Elon, you know, they don't do quarterly reports, so we don't know exactly how the business is doing, but we're starting to hear a little bit about it. I mean, that really is, it becomes a, a business story and Twitter revenue dropped 35% in the fourth quarter, according to a report in the information. And he's trimmed the workforce down from around 7,500 people to 2,300, right? So taking it down by about 70% of people, including many salespeople that are no longer at the company. And those salespeople are no longer picking up the phone from advertisers. And advertisers need that support in order to be able to keep playing, keep, keep, uh, spending with Twitter. It was already like they weren't running towards Twitter to begin with. And now they're like absolutely not going to you know, keep investing or not going to keep growing if they don't have someone to hold their hand as they navigate the changes in the ad pl- platform, the bugs in the ad platform and the, the brand safety concerns that they all have. So 
and Elon, you'll remember, took out 13, 13 billion in debt, and he has to pay a billion back every year. So, I mean, maybe they're profitable now, but they're they're losing they, their revenue is is certainly poised uh, poised to to drop uh, in this year, and and that's a concern. So it's a different sort of messy, but it continues to be messy. And if you had to predict, then I mean, is it because he's such a genius that he just turns us around in ways that we can't possibly see because we're not smart enough, or is this thing just proving to be a really dumb idea that just gets worse and worse? Um, I'm with option B on this. I mean, obviously, Elon is smart. He's worked in web companies with PayPal. He's worked in, uh, obviously, hardware companies and, and product companies with, like, Tesla, SpaceX. He can do lots of things that people continue to say he can't. So, obviously, I wouldn't say there's no chance of him turning it around. But, you know, I know advertising businesses, and advertising businesses don't work very well without salespeople. They don't work very well without predictability. Predictability is crucial for advertising. You want to know how your campaign is going to work. You want to know what you're going to appear next to. Um, you want to make sure that you're getting an ROI. And you know, Elon's perspective in terms of running Twitter is completely in um, in opposition to your typical advertising uh, yeah, needs. Yeah, exactly. And then. You think about the move to subscription. I don't think that's going to go as well as he's hoping. They're shutting off the API, so there go developers can make the service less useful. The for you page and the following, they seem like a disaster. Of course, Twitter has to build for casual, new and casual users. That's always been the problem. So the power users might hate this new format. Maybe that will work. But ultimately, I mean, you think about what he paid for this company. In a, in a moment where it was the valuation was inflated due to his desire to buy it and due to zero interest rate policy, those that, that's over. And I just, I don't really see a path forward where he's going to end up making the money that, that he anticipates and either even fixing society the way that he wanted to in his mind, because he's already, you know, content moderating with the best of them and banning accounts like old Twitter used to. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. What exactly is the save the world element there? I have a lot of respect for Elon in terms of running Tesla and, and running SpaceX. Those are great companies, and um, I'm glad they're around. But this Twitter thing seems like a real misadventure, and I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year, maybe two, he just sells it, washes his hands of it, and then you see like Tesla stock double based off of that news. <laughs> maybe that was all the plan all along. All right, last question. You're a big sports fan. Uh, who do you like in the Super Bowl? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think by the time we get around to the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes will have a healed ankle or almost healed ankle. Okay. I think that that team is explosive. They're hungry. He's pissed that he lost that last one against Tampa. And in, in, a, in a game where he really didn't have a chance to set and throw. And that's why I, and I also think the AFC, and this is underrated, but the AFC is just a much stronger conference than the NFC. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going. I'm going Chiefs. Let's say thirty-five, thirty. God, and that's solely if 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 you learned later on that Mahomes' ankle is not where he wants it to be. Does that change everything in your view, or do the Chiefs still win? I'm still going Chiefs. I mean, you look what he did to the team as well. His ankle was, you know, <laughs> right. maybe fifty percent. I mean. That game, what was it? Who was who did he injured against the Jaguars? Yeah, it's Jaguars game. Yeah. The Jaguars. That game against the Jaguars, it was very it looked immediately like the way he was walking around, it looked like he was not um he was not gonna finish that game. Yeah. Came back done. in, they win it. Of course he's less effective, but um at this point he'll have three, three, maybe four weeks or three weeks, I think, to heal. So yeah. 
that and, should be, and that should he be will be shot up with every conceivable like i can guarantee he won't feel his ankle during the game whether that yeah. it makes it harder for him to run or not i'm not sure but you know this is the time when when horse tranquilizers in football yeah. probably makes sense exactly so, hey have you what, what do you think about the controversy with tony romo i'm curious if you've heard this that no what is it romo's fallen off a lot as a as an announcer okay. like because this is what happened in the last game he was like talking about Patrick Mahomes and he's like, Oh, he's, he's a wizard and he's doing wizardry things. Like these, like he, he, he's clearly not preparing for the games as way as the way that he used to be. And there was this report that like CBS sports went down to meet with him to talk about, to review tape and talk about how he could stop, um, stop falling off a cliff and then at fox you're gonna have brady coming in as the on the number one team they're paying him a ton of money and meanwhile greg olson who's ascending as an announcer will have to find something else to do so yeah and the thing with i mean romo makes from an incredible amount of money like 15 to 20 million dollars a year or something like that at cbs so like 18 yeah so i I would imagine if i were tony romo and i was told you're about to lose your 18 million dollar a year job that requires like Mm -hmm. six months of work You'd get your shit together. Uh, but, yeah. you know, who knows? Maybe he's got it. Hey, Alex, how do people find yeah. you on, on Substack and, and online on the platform, the podcast and everything else? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. This yeah, was super. Um, Big Technology Podcast is the way to go. We do uh, two shows a week now. There's a um, flagship Wednesday interview and then a news recap with Ron John Roy of Margins every, every Friday. Um, and those are live on LinkedIn as well, which is fun. So you can find me on LinkedIn at Alex Kantrowitz. And then uh, bigtechnology.com. Yeah, I, I, I would just say name. there there are very few Substacks that at the end of the day I go back to to see <laughs> what they had to say, and you know you're pretty much the main one. So uh, Thanks, I, I you know not as my money where my mouth is, but like my time more importantly is is where my mouth is here. So highly recommend it. So Alex, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, and let's go Mets. Let's go Mets.